Well, uh, it was years ago now. We're going to be continuing now uh, by worshiping God through the study of His Word. And if you are just jumping in here, you haven't been with us for a while, we are on sermon number two of a three-part series where we are studying Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives. And while I was, a, I was attending a conference once in Orlando, it was a conference for pastors, and I, felt, I met a fellow pastor who, like me, was drawn to a table full of discounted books marked clearance. Like, if you were ever going to build a pastor trap and you were like, what should I bait it with? Just put like a table there with discounted books, marked clearance. The pastors will just gather like flies to a carcass. And so me and this guy, we were drawn. The magnetic pull of that table drew us together. We started talking while we were browsing, and we asked the normal sorts of questions that pastors ask when they are meeting at a conference like that. You know, uh, where are you pastoring? How long have you been a pastor? And when I told him that I was currently serving at an Advent Christian church, he had kind of a puzzled look on his face, and he said, what is an Advent Christian? And then very quickly, the question that usually follows, is that like a Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, which, of course, is a much more popular and prosperous Christian movement than its lesser-known cousin, the Advent Christians. Uh, but I had, this was not the first time I'd been asked this question. I went to a Christian college. I have served in a Christian ministry before becoming a pastor. I've been a pastor now, rubbing shoulders with other pastors. And lots of times when it comes up that I serve at an Advent Christian church, there's that question, what is that exactly? What is that? And that's the question we're trying to answer through this series. And maybe you've been a part of State Road Church for a long time. And I think probably most people who are drawn to this church family who begin attending here and feel, they, they do so because they feel at home here. They, they are, feel welcomed here. This is a place where the gospel is preached and where they've met good Christian brothers and sisters, friends that just feels at home. And really what drew you here was not the doctrinal distinctives necessarily. And I want you to know that's okay. In fact, that's right on. Uh, there is much more that unites us as believers than what separates us. And I think that denominational tribalism really is kind of scandalous. There's sin at the root of that, and we don't want to participate in that in a series like this. But we also know that when we come to the Bible, I mean, this is a, a book full of so many truths to wrestle with. We don't want, out of a fear of alienating somebody or giving them the impression that we're uh, really majoring in the minors or something like that, that we instead swerve away from having a robust exploration of what the Word of God says. And so every once in a while, we just think it's, it's good, it's right to wrestle with these things that have historically defined Advent Christians. But I want to say at the outset, if you don't agree with them, that also is fine. Uh, that doesn't prevent you from becoming a member here. It doesn't prevent you from enjoying full fellowship at State Road. It's just, this is something we want to talk about every once in a while. Uh, when, in fact, when I was pastoring in Florida, I preferred to describe the church where I pastored as an AC church because it was hot and sticky in Florida, and I thought it was a bit of sub subliminal advertising, you know. <laughs> I just thought if I consistently called it an AC church, people would be like, something sounds cool and refreshing about that church. <laughs> We should go there. It doesn't work in northern Maine. It, 
Talk about an AC church up here, and they're like, ah, it feels cold. And <laughs> I don't know. We've got to come up with a different AC for up here. But doctrinal distinctives, that sounds like a very official, stuffy kind of a term, doesn't it? Uh, these are those interpretations of Scripture that have been historically taught in Advent Christian churches. And although they are not absolutely unique to Advent Christians, lots of Christians, lots of believers down through the years have interpreted the Bible in just the exact same way. They do tend to be what defines our movement and sets us off, makes us distinct from some other Christian denominations. But again, of course, the most important word in the name of the Advent Christian denomination is Christian. And we need to avoid anything that smacks of just that sort of disunity, that denominational chest pounding, anything of the sort. That's not what we're trying to do here. We agree with that old maxim, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, throughout this series, we will be exploring AC distinctives by posing a question and then seeking God's word for an answer. And last week's question was, is man immortal? And after seeking God's word together, we came away with the answer that man is not immortal, but is rather immortable. And that may have been a new word for some of us, but immortable means that man is capable of attaining to immortality but is not immortal by nature. Man was at the first created for immortality in the Garden of Eden, but in the fall, immortality was forfeited. Death entered the world and passed upon all human beings. And now, a continuing existence in eternity is the sole portion of the redeemed. Immortality has been made conditional on a saving relationship with Jesus. That was last week's study. Next week, we'll wrap up this little sermon series by taking up the question, what is the ultimate or final end of the wicked? Uh, most of the time, we like to talk about where we're going as Christians. I'm far more excited by the concept of heaven than of hell, but that's what we're going to be talking about last week. The Bible talks about it, and so certainly we should as well. What, what is the final end of those who don't put their trust in Jesus for salvation? However, before we get there, the question we want to seek God's word for an answer to this morning is what happens to a person when they die? And in response to this, questions, in response to this question, Advent Christians have traditionally taught what is commonly referred to as soul sleep. Uh, that may be a new concept to you today. We're going to be explaining it. But I did tell my kids, if ever there was a Sunday, I mean, if ever there was a Sunday for us to have a pajama Sunday, this is it. And I blew it. <laughs> Can't you just see us all coming in our pajamas to church? Soul sleep. This is the belief that when a person dies... They do not go immediately to heaven or hell, but that death is a condition of unconsciousness to all people. And this is true for both those who were followers of Jesus in life and those who were not. This is the conviction that the dead will remain in this unconscious state until the resurrection at the second coming of Christ, at which, at which time all people who have died 
will be raised bodily from their graves to stand before the throne of judgment, some unto eternal life and reward, and some unto wrath and destruction. Now, the $5 theological term for this period of time between a person's death and the second coming of Jesus is called the intermediate state. And the Bible is full of passages, the plain meaning of which affirms the idea that the intermediate state is passed in a period of unconsciousness, something akin to sleep. Uh, Last night when I fell asleep, I got to bed at around 2.30. Jack had an anaphylactic reaction, and we had to go to the hospital. And so I was there until about 2.30, and when I came home, I was beat. I just laid down on the bed. It's gone. The next thing I knew was this morning. <laughs> I, it was a deep, dreamless sleep. I was not aware of anything happening in my environment. I fell asleep thinking about the hospital and woke up thinking about you guys. <laughs> and what a picture that is. I think of a lot of folks who die in a hospital setting, maybe, and who wake up amongst God's people. That was really my experience overnight. It was like sleep. And that is, I think, how the Bible describes folks who have died. In the Bible, the condition of the dead is consistently described as a state akin to sleeping. And in fact, sleep is the word, the preferred word, that the Bible used to describe those who have fallen asleep in the Lord or died. The Hebrew word shakav, which means sleep, occurs again and again in describing the condition of the dead. For example, in 1 Kings 2.10, when we are told of the death of King David, it said that David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. In Psalm 13.3, it says this, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And there are no shortage of passages, both in the Old and New Testaments, that affirm this interpretation of death as a state of unconscious rest. Psalm 6.5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David said in Psalm 30, What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will, I, will it tell of your faithfulness? In Ecclesiastes 9.5, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Speaking of the resurrection at the end of time, Daniel wrote prophetically in Daniel 12.2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In John 5, It says this, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Think about it. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb as a living example of the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, in this moment when Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the dead, we see I guess for lack of a better term, kind of the mechanics of death. This served as a glorious foretaste of the coming day when all persons will be called out from the grave and we are given a glimpse here into a little tiny 
for sample size foretaste of that day. Lazarus was not in heaven when he was called forth. Jesus said of him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Lazarus is sleeping. Lazarus has died. Neither of these two statements was Jesus fibbing. This is reconciled only by the idea that death is a sort of sleep. Lazarus is not described in our Bibles as being recalled from heaven, but rather called forth from the sleep of the dead. When the Bible speaks about the great heroes of the Old Testament who fell asleep and were gathered to their fathers in the grave, it describes their present condition in a way that demonstrates that the biblical writers did not believe that they had already gone to their reward in heaven. According to the New Testament, only Christ has yet been resurrected to become, quote, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. This language of sleep applied to those who have died most naturally and euphemistically means that they are for the time being unconscious, at rest, unaware of the passage of time. They are awaiting the great moment towards which this whole age is straining, when the dead will be resurrected, and when, according to the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The dead will be raised. This is the great Christian hope. The idea that death is merely a separation of a conscious, immortal soul from the body, which is shed at death like a husk, came not from the Bible. We talked about this last week, but from Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy has tremendously influenced Western thought, and it has led to some interpretations of the Bible which I think are problematic. And last week, I, I quoted this quote from Plato in Phaedo. Uh, I'm just going to read it again, but this is just to illustrate, this sounds like a lot of Christian thinking today about death, which really is at odds with what most of the Bible says about what happens when we die. But this reads like Plato was a Christian. Listen to this. The soul whose inseparable attitude is life will never admit of life's opposite death. Thus the soul is shown to be immortal, and since immortal, indestructible. We believe there is such a thing as death, to be sure. And is this anything but the separation of the soul and body? Being dead is the attainment of this separation when the soul exists in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul. That is death. Death is merely the separation of soul and body. Now, if you talk to many Christians today, that is precisely their view of what happens at death. But that is not what the biblical writers say. That is what Plato said. And Greek philosophical thought has so infused our culture that we read that interpretation into what the Bible says rather than allowing the Bible to frame our understanding of what happens 
when we die. At least that's my conviction. The idea that the soul departs from the body at death, I feel, is a flat contradiction of what the Bible says about the state of the dead. And this has led to a lot of confusion. For what sense can be made of a scheme which places each dying Christian immediately in heaven at death, only to have that person raised from the grave at a future time? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? In attempt to reconcile the plain meaning of the biblical writers with the pervasive influence of Greek philosophy on the way we think about our souls at death has led to the idea of the resurrection of the body only. In other words, you die, your soul goes to heaven, and then at the second coming of Christ, your bodies are raised, the soul is rejoined to it for the judgment, which has already happened, apparently, because you are already in your eternal destination. This scheme really doesn't make much sense, I don't feel. And on top of that, the scriptures never speak of the resurrection of the body or of the flesh. It speaks only of the resurrection of the dead. John Wesley, a great theologian and not an Advent Christian at all, He wrote this, It is indeed very generally believed that the souls of good men, as soon as they are discharged from the body, go directly to heaven. But this opinion has not the least foundation in the oracles of God. Now hold on, some of you might be thinking. You know your Bibles well. (laughs) And you're already lining up some scriptures that challenge what I just said. And maybe you're thinking, didn't Paul say something about how being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Didn't he say that? I think I remember a verse like that somewhere. And wouldn't that seem to support the idea that at death, body and soul separate? And hey, what about when Jesus was on the cross and there's the thief next to him and he said to him, you're going to be with me in paradise. Didn't he even say, today you'll be with me in paradise? The very day that their bodies were laying in tombs, was that not proof that their soul and bodies separated? There are a cluster of Bible passages that are commonly cited in support of the idea that when we die, we pass directly on to heaven or hell, and that this happens immediately. And a famous proof text is that one I just quoted, is found in 2 Corinthians 5, where it's argued that Paul described death as being away from the body and at home with the Lord. They may also cite Philippians 1, 21 through 23, and there Paul again says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, that is far better." So that seems to be saying, doesn't it, that he can depart from his body and go be at home with Christ. Now, real quick, before I move on, I want to spend the most of the time talking about Paul this morning and what he says in those two passages, but really quick, just that uh, another commonly cited passage is that one where the thief says uh, to Jesus, um, where Jesus says to the thief, rather, today you will be with me in paradise. I just want you to know that the entire meaning of that verse, and maybe you're already aware of this, hinges on the placement of a comma, which didn't exist in the original language. It's really the difference of saying, come on, grandma, come on, let's eat, grandma, and come on, let's eat grandma, (laughs) right? Where you place a comma, 
makes a big difference in that sentence. It's the difference between eating grandma and inviting grandma to come eat. And what Jesus, if you move the comma from um, on either side of today, when Jesus makes that statement, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, or truly I tell you today, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's, a, that's an expression we have in our culture. Surely I'm telling you today, you're going to be with me in paradise, is very different than saying, I'm telling you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. The way we, you see, this is how our expectations and prejudices, when we read it into the Bible, uh, can affect it. Now, at best, that verse is a 50-50 jump ball. Uh, It could support what they're saying, but it could just as easily be in support of the Advent Christian view. So given that that's a 50-50 jump ball, let's instead wrestle with uh, what Paul had to say in these different passages. And these are the passages in 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1. These are probably the passages most commonly referenced in support of the idea that at death a person's soul separates from their body and goes directly to either heaven or hell. However, if we study these passages, which are both authored by Paul in their context, and in light of all that Paul has to say on the topic, we'll come away, I think, with the clear understanding that what he is communicating is a hope that he would see Jesus in the general resurrection on the day of his second coming when he is resurrected from the dead. Take, for example, what he says later on in the book of Philippians. He says this, Philippians 3, beginning at verse 10, "...that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now this passage contains three indispensable elements of Paul's view of what happens after we die. One, he talks about the resurrection. He also talks about the second coming of Jesus from heaven, that those two things are concurrent. And he talks about a change of state from mortal to immortal. In other words, I died mortal, and in the resurrection I will be made immortal. And in complete agreement with these verses is another passage where Paul speaks most powerfully about his hope in the coming resurrection. If you've been a Christian for a long time and have sat through a lot of Easter services, I am sure you have heard loads of sermons on 1 Corinthians 15, where he writes this, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Jumping down to verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's when that becomes real, at the resurrection, in its fullness. Now, how can this passage, as clearly and forcefully stated as it is, be reconciled with the popular view that the departed dead are already in possession of immortality? Very hard for me to imagine how that could be done. Surely, it is only at the resurrection that immortality will be conferred on the redeemed. There is no suggestion in what Paul writes that resurrection means the reuniting of an already conscious spirit with its body. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul is attempting to answer the question that had arisen in the minds of the Thessalonian Christians about the state of their brothers and sisters who had died before the return of Jesus, Paul could have removed all their anxiety by telling them that their loved ones who had died in Christ were already with Jesus in heaven. He could have told them that. But he doesn't tell them that. He instead reinforces the belief that the dead will be raised at the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." Paul, what happens to, what are, where are our friends who have died? They're, they're sleeping in the grave, awaiting the day of Christ's return. This is what Paul says, in essence, here. So how, then, should we interpret or understand Paul's remarks in Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, where he talks about departing and being with the Lord, and how to be absent from the body is to be home with God? Is Paul contradicting himself? Well, given all that Paul has to say on this topic, and incidentally, in the passage in 2 Corinthians 5, and that one in particular, that was written to the same people he wrote 1 Corinthians 15 to. He's the same author writing the same people, and those two letters were probably sent within the span of a year at the earliest. So not a lot of time has gone by between when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5. And I think we need to give Paul some credit here that he's not contradicting himself, but is elaborating on something. Given all that Paul has to say on the topic, I think we can feel confident that what Paul was describing was his desire to 
be with Christ through death and the subsequent resurrection. Like I said at the beginning, like when I fell asleep this morning at 2.30 or whatever it was. For the dying, their next second of consciousness will be to find themselves alive in the resurrection. Departure from this life will mean being with Christ at his coming. And although years might have been spent in the intermediate state of unconsciousness in the grave, the next moment of consciousness, the next moment of awareness will follow experientially closely on the heels of our last known thoughts in life. We die, and then the next thing we're aware of, the resurrection. And if we consider Paul's statement about being absent from the body and present with the Lord, we will find that it too is set in a context that because of the striking similarity between the language of 1 Corinthians 15 and that passage, must also be referencing a hope in a future resurrection and not to any notion that his disembodied spirit should go to heaven ahead of his body. And this can be clearly seen, by the way, from what Paul says in the verses that come before what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 16, it says this, "...knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, so we do not lose heart." Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. These remarks that immediately precede what Paul says about how being absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, I really think should warn us not to try and read any idea into what Paul says in the next chapter about a future state in heaven that precedes the resurrection at the second coming. There are three clear points of contact between 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. One is, the first one is this, the notion of being clothed with immortality. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4, Paul says this, For in this tent, speaking about his body, we groan. How many of you are familiar with that sensation? In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. In other words, I want to put on a new set of clothes. (laughs) I want a new tent, God. If indeed by putting it on, we we may not be found naked. You see, when he describes this idea of existing without a body, Paul kind of recoils from the thought as spiritually repugnant. Like it's like being naked. It's like a turtle without a shell. A human being, in Paul's view, is an embodied soul. It's the mingling of the breath of life and the dust of the earth. That's what it is to be a human being. And he really can't stomach the idea, or he just describes it here as being naked, being found naked. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, In other words, not that I would just be a floating spirit, but that we would be further clothed so that what is is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And we see the exact same point being made in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when he writes this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So here when Paul is talking about the hope of the general resurrection at the end of time, in 2 Corinthians 5, he's talking about the same thing. Another point of contact between these two passages is the appearance of the Lord from heaven, not in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2, it speaks of our heavenly dwelling, or as some translations render it, our dwelling which is from heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So here he's talking about the hope of immortality and life coming from heaven, not in our going to heaven. And this is an important distinction, and I think it's something that's lost in a lot of Christian speech and thought surrounding what happens when we die. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back, not that upon death we go directly to Jesus. Jesus is coming for us. And that is more true to what the biblical writers had to say about the state of the dead. The third point of contact between these two passages is the idea of man's natural mortality being superseded and replaced with a supernatural immortality. These points of contact involving the use of identical language surely rule out the possibility that Paul has two different events in mind. And this seems especially true because he is again writing to the same people and within a short amount of time. To take Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians 5, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, and take that to mean that the spirit of each individual believer goes directly to heaven upon death, would be reading that passage in direct contradiction to everything else Paul says on the subject. And it also contradicts the surrounding context of 2 Corinthians 5. So, we began with the question of what happens to a person when they die. And after seeking the word of God for an answer, we have found that God is not silent on the subject at all. He has spoken quite forcefully and repetitively on this. I think we can feel very certain that upon dying, all people enter a state of unconsciousness and are unaware of the passage of time, and that they remain in this state until the second coming of Jesus, when, as Daniel says in Daniel 12, 2, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, that question really doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. What happens when we die? Now, you might walk out of the building today saying, who cares? <laughs> and really, that's, you know, okay. But the thing that really gets me emotional, that gets me passionate, is this thing that Daniel says. That, yeah, when we wake up at the second coming, some are going to wake to everlasting life, to the unending experience of pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. They're going to walk in the glories of the earth made new. They're going to experience things that we have never even dreamed of, this side of glory. Others, however, are going to wake up to the reality of shame and everlasting contempt. 
And really, the thing that animates and governs a church should not be secondary issues about when you die, do you go to heaven right away, or do you lay in the grave until Jesus comes back? Again, these are issues where Christians of good conscience, thoughtful, sincere Bible scholars disagree on this, and that's fine. It's okay. But the thing that should really govern and animate us as a group of believers is the conviction that Jesus is coming back, the days are short, and there are many who do not know the truth of the gospel. There are many who will go to the grave never having heard the gospel if God's people don't speak up, if God's people don't go and share the truth with them. And really, that is the thing that should animate us and go, as we go forward. Advent Christians, if you're not aware of this, the word Advent is simply a reference to the second coming of Christ. The great contribution of the early Adventists was in changing the conversation among Christians of get right with Jesus before you die to get right with Jesus before he comes back. And that really was a, 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 a sea change in the way that the church talks about salvation and evangelism is the days are short, Jesus could come back. If you are a perfectly healthy 16-year-old in the prime of your life, peak physical condition, you need to wonder about this just as well as somebody who is in more precarious health or maybe approaching the end of their life. Uh, Jesus is coming back. And church family, this is the thing that should really grab our attention. Jesus is coming back, and will he find State Road faithful in this day, in this hour, in this time? The situation is urgent. It's desperate. But the people of God maybe aren't all the time. Maybe Josh Tate isn't all the time. And the reason why Advent Christians started this whole movement was the belief Jesus is coming back. We have to win souls to the kingdom before the days of decision are over. Because what Daniel says here is absolutely true. In the resurrection, some will wake to, re to reward and some will wake up to wrath. And we are going out to try and bring as many people as we can into the kingdom in the days that God has given us to do that together. Now next week, we're going to tackle our third and last question having to do with Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives, and that is this. What is the ultimate or final end of the wicked? We'll tackle that next week. Look forward to come on back. We'll have another conversation next week about this, which is also an important thing to know and think about. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You are great. Father, I pray for a spirit of unity among God's people, uh, that even as we do um, kick the tires and study and explore and seek your word for answers, God, I know that Christians who have good consciences before you, who are thoughtful and sincere, will interpret things differently. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would give us, you would grant us by the Holy Spirit the ability, when it comes to the essentials, that we would just be in lockstep agreement. And when it comes to those areas where we don't agree, that we would extend liberty to one another and that in all things we would just demonstrate love and charity towards others. Father, give us the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. Give us the ability to explore and ask questions and share convictions without feeling threatened. 
And God, I pray, Lord, that whether somebody agrees with the doctrinal interpretations that we've explored here today, or whether they've arrived at a different conclusion about what happens to somebody when they die, God, I pray that we would together major in the biggest, most important things, which is those essentials of the faith and our calling, our great commission calling to go and make disciples. Father, I, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for a people who love exploring your word together. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.